Welcome to the Dark Side of the Full Moon podcast. I'm Jennifer Silliman, and this show is continuing the conversations started in the award-winning first-ever documentary film about maternal mental health. My journey as an advocate began through the power of storytelling. With this podcast, I hope to create a community of women and professionals sharing their own powerful narratives to let others know they're not alone and help is out there. Keep in mind that some of the stories you will hear may be triggering, but it's important they be told. This podcast is not a replacement for professional help from a licensed medical provider. If you or someone you know is suffering due to a maternal mental health condition, please contact your medical provider or call or text message the Postpartum Support International Helpline at 1-800-944-4773. Now let's continue the conversation. Yeah, let's just have a conversation. Tell me a little bit about yourself and your family. Yeah, so I live in South Florida. It's so beautiful here. I, I love it. I moved here back in 2003, which feels like a billion years ago. And I live here with my husband, Bill, and my daughter, Allison, and was lucky enough to partner up with someone who experienced what I had experienced during my pregnancy with my daughter. And we were able to do a documentary film, which which is still like my greatest accomplishment. You do that with your husband? I actually did it with a girl uh, who lived in Miami. And it was so weird because she came up here to film my daughter who lives with autism. And she was like, I just want to interview you. You're the mom, blah, blah, blah. So she interviewed me and she's like, oh, you're really good on camera. And I'm like, oh, well, I went to school for broadcasting and I love public speaking. And I said, I actually run a support group for moms that are dealing with postpartum depression. Oh my gosh. I had postpartum depression. I've wanted to do a film about it forever. And I'm like, okay, let's do it. Wow. And then <laughs> that's literally helpful. Yeah. I met her in September and in November she was here and we were sketching out the film. I think it's so wild how life puts those opportunities right in front of us, right? Right under our noses. Crazy. So it's just, it was nuts, but by far the coolest thing that I've ever been a part of. It was quite a journey and it was just incredible. So when did you make the film? We met in 2012. We started filming in 2013 and it launched in February of 2015. So it was really fast process. We wanted to get it out as soon as possible. At the time that we were filming the documentary, there were a lot of news stories coming out. Moms were committing suicide. There was all these national news stories that were coming out about these moms. And we're like, oh my gosh, not only are these moms not getting help, but the news world was really just making a dramatic story out of all of these and not really educating anybody. It's a really uncompassionate approach, right? It really is. When I come from a journalism background, so I completely get it. Like I understand all the tricks of the trade when it comes to what people are going to listen to, what people are going to watch and what's going to pull them into the broadcast. But it being stories of things that affected me firsthand, I was just like, no, this is not, we cannot dramatized. It can't be treated this way because this is just going to make mom hide even more because of how it's being portrayed in the media. So yeah, it was really important for us to get the film out just to start that, that educational process because a film had not been done like this. And we were the first ones to launch a documentary in the United States specifically about maternal mental health and and how it's treated here in America, which you would think it was treated pretty well, but it is not. We are so far behind other countries. Oh, horrendous. 
Absolutely. And I think that sensationalization in the media, I remember growing up seeing similar stories of maternal suicide of new moms. Obviously the one that comes to mind is like a new mom who drowned her baby in a bathtub. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And I remember as a kid hearing my mom say things like, oh my gosh, I don't know how anyone could do that to their children. Like that's just so terrible. And now as a mom who has gone through a perinatal mood and anxiety disorder, you're, she's right. No one in their right mind would do this to their child, but I can also see the state of mind that could get someone to that point. Yeah, absolutely. Looking at it at face value, especially when you see it in the news, I think it's a natural reaction for people to say, oh my gosh, like who would ever do something like that? But you're exactly right. Once you're in it and you know how dark it can really feel and how isolating it can feel and how unnatural it feels because we're filled and thrown all of these things about perfect motherhood and how it's so wonderful, you know, and when that doesn't happen, it's devastating. And you think right away that something is definitely wrong with me because I shouldn't be feeling this way. So, yeah. Yeah, certainly the narrative that I received growing up from everyone was you meet your kid and you're instantly smitten and life has a new purpose and you're just willing to give up every part of your old life for your baby and you do it gladly Mm -hmm. and without complaints. Yeah, with a big smile on your face. With a big smile on your face, (laughs) you know, so it, it definitely caught me a little bit by surprise what I experienced for sure. Yeah. And I know you, we had chatted just a little bit before we started recording that you were, that you were misdiagnosed. And I know you haven't really shared that part of your motherhood journey. So if you're willing to share, I definitely want to dive into it. And I think it's so helpful for other moms. So spill the beans here, Jaylee, let us know (laughs) what's going on. Okay. So as listeners to my podcast will know, I experienced a unexpected turn of events at the end of my pregnancy. My blood pressure turned on a dime around the 36 week mark. And I never quite hit the preeclampsia mark, but I was coerced into making medical decisions that I did not want to make. I had gone to a lot of effort to switch from an OB to a midwife to receive a certain type of care. And then once I was in that care, I had these complications and then I ended up back in the place that I started. And it did end up with me agreeing to an induction at 37 weeks. My husband and I were not emotionally ready at all. Everything that we had been told with my first pregnancy with a boy, what do you hear, right? Oh, don't expect to go into labor before your due date. Boys are always late. First babies are always late. Labors are always really long. Like don't twiddle your thumbs waiting to go into labor. Right. Even in my childbirth education class, that was... Mm -hmm what we were told is just, you're not going to go into labor before your due date. You will not. So I was almost in denial when my blood pressure started going on the fritz. Cause I was like, absolutely not. Like I'm a first time mom. This is just the medical system scaring me. I had been reading a lot of things in the natural birth community about the medical community is big and scary and they're not looking out for your best interest. And they'll find any reason to induce in hindsight I did have some legitimate medical issues going on, but I had been so clouded by the things that I was consuming at the time that I was really resistant. Yeah. So surprisingly, my induction went really well. I was told to expect it to take three days. 
because at the time it was so early, my bishop score was like super not favorable to a smooth induction. And I was really scared about how everything was going to go, but it turned out I had basically like a night of cervical ripening. And then my provider came to check me and my water had broken and I went right into active labor. I had a five hour labor unmedicated, which was what I wanted. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think at that stage with the turn of events that it was going to happen. So surprisingly, my birth experience was like the best part of my whole story. Yeah. And I thought that that was the thing that was going to be taken away, but I would say right leading right up to the birth, I had some friendships that were really shaky. And when I was venting about the things that were really scary to me and that I was struggling to accept the change in plans. And I was just feeling really not ready to be a parent. All I got in return from the people around me were like, Oh my God. Yay. I'm so excited for you. You're going to have a baby before you know it. Isn't it so wonderful that you're going to have a baby in your arms. Oh my gosh. You just need to think positively. Oh my gosh. You get three extra weeks with your baby. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, that is not at all where I was mentally, and I was not ready to receive those sorts of comments. So that was very tough for me. And I struggled with a lot of guilt over, over even being upset. Things weren't going as planned. I I felt like I was going to be perceived as selfish, self-centered, and that I was valuing my birth experience over a healthy baby. Right. So There was a little bit of hesitance to really speak honestly about it after that was what I received the first time. And it was almost as if immediately I got the message that how I feel about things doesn't matter anymore. You just disappear. Yeah. I would say that was my first real experience of feeling like I had disappeared. After my son was born, we were moved over to the postpartum wing. Our first night was wonderful. We got little sleep, but we didn't expect to get much sleep. And then I had been on some blood pressure medication and I had not been told that that could impact baby's blood sugar after he was born. He was born with critically low blood sugar. The hospital that we had him in was not equipped to handle low blood sugars in any other fashion, except giving them formula. And I was uneducated about that. I really wanted to exclusively breastfeed. That was my preference, but immediately he had formula. It was fine. His blood sugar came back up, but then the next day they took him for a circumcision, even though we had talked about it being delayed. And when he came back, he was so sleepy, he couldn't eat. And so his blood sugar started tanking again. And this time they were tanking pretty low and no one really informed us of what the risks of low blood sugar were, even how low his blood sugar was. The solution was just immediately triple feed, essentially. And for anyone who's listening, who doesn't know what triple feeding is, that is when you nurse the baby, which takes about 15, 20 minutes. And then you pump which takes 15, 20 minutes in my hospital. It took 40 minutes because it was a single-sided pump and I did not have a nursing bra. So I had to hold it with both hands and then you feed the baby what you pumped and then you feed the baby, whatever they need left in formula. we did this for 48 hours in the hospital. We were released. No one told us that we could stop. So I continued to do this for a month. When my milk came in, we stopped feeding him formula, but I triple fed for a month after he was born. Even no one told me that when my milk came in, I wouldn't have to do that anymore. Right. 
So I pumped myself into oversupply and no one told me that pumping more is just going to make you make more milk. So I was pretty much around the clock, just spilling milk and pumping and dealing with clogged ducts and then feeding the baby. I have a picture somewhere of my husband laying on the floor doing skin to skin with our son. And it's just got the pump in the front. And that was my life for the first month. And I felt so resentful that I was never huddling my baby because I was always pumping. Yeah. Wow. I can't believe they didn't tell you, like they didn't give you like post instructions, <laughs> like on not when it came to breastfeeding and we had to really fight to get a lactation consultant in the room to even wow. talk to us about feeding period. And they were like, well, he's latching. Everything looks good. I don't know what the problem is. And I mentioned the blood sugar issue. And she was like, I don't know about that. And she went and got a pediatrician, but the pediatrician didn't come until 9 PM. And at 9 PM, he started saying, Oh, well, we've been thinking about sending him to another hospital to go to a NICU because we don't have a NICU here. Okay. I mean, I had no idea that it was getting that serious. Like, honestly, I think a lot of my trauma came from the fact that there was little communication about what was going on and what the risks were and our options as far as handling it. We were pretty much told we had one option, shove a bottle of formula in his mouth. I found out much later that there's actually like a glucose thing that they can put in the side of his mouth and that wouldn't disrupt breastfeeding. It would still bring his sugar levels up, but we didn't know. And I felt really informed about birth. I'd done a lot of research and I felt really strong in advocating for myself on that front. However, postpartum was a totally different ball game because I had these preferences, but there was so much judgment attached to them because now there's a little baby involved. Right. And I didn't know a whole lot. And I felt like every decision that I made was really being judged. And if I made a decision other than what the doctors recommended, that it was going to be perceived as, oh my gosh, you're such a neglectful mother. Yeah. So I remember in those initial months, really the whole time I was breastfeeding, whenever I would pump, I would just get this awful feeling. And it was almost as if I was back in the hospital room. It was like a feeling of panic and dread because I remember in the hospital, it felt dire. It was like, if I don't pump this milk, then, oh, this baby's blood sugar is going to plummet. And then he's going to get sent to the NICU and we're going to have to go to another hospital. He's going to be taken away. They're going to think I'm at a And I just remember having that awful like body feeling every time I hooked up to a pump for the first year, the whole time I breastfed and I really didn't enjoy breastfeeding and I really resented it. And I think it was a huge contributing factor to how I experienced my postpartum. Yeah. Yeah. And we talk about a trauma all the time, at least in, in, in this field. And when you associate your baby's health directly with whether or not I can supply what that baby needs so that all these other things don't happen. Of course. Now, every time you breastfeed or nurse or whatever, your body reacts just as it did when you were sitting in the hospital. Yeah. A lot of times the hospital is such a traumatic place for any mom that has experienced something like this to go back to. It's something that we see all the time, even with support groups, these people that want to start support groups, but they start them in the hospitals. And a lot of these moms will not go back to the hospital. (laughs) 
they won't go back. It's such a convenient place for them to be. But if a mom has been traumatized and I was, I, oh my gosh. So I didn't want to breastfeed. I wanted to formula feed. I wanted my husband to be able to feed. I didn't want to be attached to anything. I just, it was too stressful for me being the main source of food. Like I just, that for me, that was just too much. Oh my gosh. It's a lot. I know. And then that's all the stories that I heard was how, yeah. how great it is, but how like the, the amount of just stress. And I thought to myself, there's no way I can do this. And plus, I was I unprepared for it. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of moms are prepared for it. I think it's projected in a way that breast is best. And this is just, if, if you can do it, you, you need to do it. And I don't even know if I could have done, I produced milk. Obviously I, they're like, if you don't want to produce any more milk, you need to have your husband bring the smallest sports bra that you have. <laughs> like, okay, you would tell me how to make this stuff because I'm definitely not, I'm just not going to do it. Right. I had a scheduled C-section with her anyway, because I had placenta privia. Oh. So I wasn't going to be able to do it a natural birth, but my whole birth story was really traumatic. I started bleeding at home. I had to call an ambulance and I had to call my husband and then I was taken by ambulance to the hospital and they didn't know why I was bleeding and blah, blah, blah. So I had an emergency section that day. So she was like six weeks early. And so she was in the NICU for like 10 days. And I remember the very first time I walked into the NICU, I'll never forget it. I remember what I heard, what I saw, all my senses were like on higher alert. I can just like remember every moment of walking into that NICU for the first time. Now, mind you, I had already been having intrusive thoughts while I was pregnant. So I was having intrusive thoughts when I walked into the NICU anyways. And I walk in and the head nurse, because she goes, where's your milk? And I'm like, oh, I'm not breastfeeding. What do you mean you're not breastfeeding? I'm not breastfeeding. They're like, well, your baby's in the NICU. You need to pump. And I'm like, I'm not pumping. And she just looked at me like I was killing my baby. Like if looks could kill, I would have died right there in the NICU. And every time I went into the NICU to see my baby, she asked for my milk. And it's so interesting because my mother-in-law was a NICU nurse for a while and she totally wrote the hospital administrator and like gave them the nurse's name because I was being bullied. I dreaded going there because it's like, gosh, if that nurse is working, she's going to ask me for my milk. It made me feel really bad about it that I'm not pumping. But my point is I would have never gone back there for a support group. Right. I was so traumatized by that whole thing, like being taken by ambulance, being in the emergency room, you not knowing what's going on. I mean, that whole thing. And what's so crazy is that not one person asked how I was after the C-section. Like they didn't say, we know you were brought in by ambulance. That can be really traumatizing. Well, yeah. Like I didn't know if I was dying. I didn't know if my baby was dying. I was bleeding. I didn't know what was going on. Like it was very, no one ever addressed it. It was like, your baby was early, but your baby's the biggest baby in the NICU. You just need to be happy. Your baby's not going to die. And there's other babies in the NICU that probably aren't going to make it. Your baby's definitely going to make it. You survived. Everything is fine. Get over it, basically. And that lack of empathy is something that is so palpable when I listen to other moms share their story. And I don't know if it's just because they're desensitized because they're in it day in and day out. These moms and these families need to be cared for emotionally so much better than they're being cared for. And the sad part is it doesn't take a lot to to be empathetic. All I needed was someone to just acknowledge what the hell had just happened to me. 
and how traumatic that was. And nobody did. And it was like, it wasn't important. And that's the moment I disappeared that right. no, didn't matter. Now Allie yeah. was pounds, two ounces. She was healthy. She was going home in a few days. There was nothing else wrong with her. That's it. Like it was no longer about anything that I had experienced. It was just about her. And you always hear that that happens. Everyone wants to hear about the baby, but I'm like, gosh, guys, taken by ambulance, bleeding profusely, had to call 911. Like, hello, like, does anyone care what that did to me? It was really tough. Not to mention that I was already having intrusive thoughts that I wasn't sharing with anybody. So that just made it like a hundred times worse. I'm like, no one even knows that like, I'm having thoughts of like hurting myself and hurting other people. Like, This is just one more thing on top of everything else. And it's scary. I know that you had said you were misdiagnosed, but then you were diagnosed with, is that... OCD and trauma. So my, my journey with that was it took me seven months to seek out help. It took me seven months. And it wasn't until I went over to a friend's house one day and it was like, I was just having a really bad day. And I just, I went over there and this is a friend who knows me pretty well. She took one look at me and she listens to me talk for a couple of minutes. And she just said, do you think you might be suffering from postpartum depression? And I said, well, yeah, but like everyone's depressed after they have a baby. I had been reading all of this, like normalized postpartum stuff, which I think can be a double-edged sword, right? Because on one hand, yes, these things need to be talked about, but they need to be talked about in a way that encourage folks to recognize when they need to seek out help rather than just saying, oh, this is normal. Like this is what we all deal with. Hashtag normalized postpartum. I would always stop people and be like, it's not normal. It's common. (laughs) Like it happens. Right. And I've had this discussion discussion before on my podcast that normal is different than common. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And imagine a mom who's like in her darkest spot and you're like, oh, don't worry. This is normal. Well, someone said to me, like, great. Is this like my new normal? Like, am I going to be like this all the time now? Because I can't survive like this. So yeah, that can be... I think people think it's comforting, right? When you're the other person going, oh, uh, don't worry about it. Everybody goes through this. No big deal. But we don't dig deeper to figure out what the severity of it is. That can be, that could be heart-wrenching for someone to hear for sure. Right. And I think for me, another big barrier was I didn't even know who I was supposed to reach out to. They don't tell you. I remember my um, hospital discharge papers and the nurse at the hospital was talking to me and she just said, yeah, reach out if you're having thoughts of harming yourself or your baby. Right. Reach out to someone. Reach out to who? Ooh, tell this to. Reach out to my OB, reach out to my general practitioner, just go straight to a therapist. Who am I reaching out to? And I remember just when you're in a haze, right? Obviously removed from it. I'm like, oh, the obvious solution is to call your OB or right. your midwife or whoever's caring for you. Right. But when I was in it, just the fog that a perinatal mood and anxiety disorder on top of just the fog of having a newborn and being sleep deprived. I think that it really needs to be spelled out. I had a guest tell me once (laughs) women are like, don't worry about me. I have everything all together. I'm a type A personality. I can make this all happen. The problem is, is what as women and moms, we don't realize is that our critical thinking skills completely go out the freaking window as soon as we give birth. And it's because of those other things, right? We're sleep deprived. We're not eating well. We've been through a traumatic experience. We're hormones. Hormones. (laughs) Right. 
So yeah, our critical thinking skills are not great. They are when we're pregnant, right? And we're like, have everything in order. We know what to do, but boy, oh boy, you need to have those people around you that can make those decisions, right? And help you make those decisions for you. I always tell moms that go to the doctor or, and finally like reach out for help. I'm like, please don't go by yourself because you're not going to remember anything that they say. <laughs> so take somebody with you who can you know, also advocate for you because it's hard to even put it into words, what you're experiencing, you know, and, and sometimes you forget stuff. I was very forgetful. Like I, I just, you couldn't keep any of it straight. So, and then for I, me, it was very up and down. And now I understand it's because it was PTSD and it was OCD. It was not anxiety or depression, which can be like a constant state. It was very much something that would be triggered by things. So then when it came around time for me to take the Edinburgh survey, which I have a bone to pick with that too, that could be a whole other podcast. (laughs) I'd love to do that podcast with you. Yeah. But whenever it came time for me to fill out that survey at the pediatrician's office, it would always like fall on when I was having a good day. Of course. Or when I was having a good week. So I was like, well, today I haven't been, you know, but yeah, it was seven months for me to seek out help. And I still have people in my life who, since I had my first child have not asked me how I'm doing. And have told me that they want to get together because they'd love to see my kids. And I used to matter to those people. Yeah. So I think it is something that's really deeply ingrained in our culture. And I remember when I was pregnant with my first child, feeling on top of the world. I was so proud of my body for what it was doing. I felt sexy. Like I had never been so confident in my body. I felt really loved by the people around me. Like people were throwing me baby showers. People were saying, Oh, if you need anything, let me know. And I had my baby and it's not that those people weren't there for me. It's, I think there's something that can really be said for opening the door for someone to ask for help. And I think too often we put the responsibility of asking for help on the new parent, but what we don't see is how much they already have on their plate and being burdened with the task of mustering up the courage. Asking for help is a really vulnerable thing. Mustering up the courage to ask someone else for help in a time where it's already just so overwhelming. You add on if they're suffering from a mood and anxiety disorder on top of that, the idea of reaching out to someone and asking for help can be crippling because we don't even know what we need. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's a big thing for a lot of moms that they don't even know what to ask for. And it's so funny because it's changed. My daughter's 12. So it has changed so much in 12 years, what people do now for families. It's the meal trains. It's like all of these things. So I, I, I very, 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 very slowly think we're taking baby steps towards realizing what families need when they bring home a newborn baby. But a hundred percent that it is ingrained in our culture that we are to be superwoman. We just make it all happen. We don't ask for help because that's a sign of weakness. That's still a big part 
of this whole thing. And it's sad that it's that way because I think we're just influx with so much like independent woman, strong mama can do everything. And on the other side, it's like, oh, but you should always feel comfortable to ask for help. And then it's okay to be vulnerable. And, and it's like to try to find that place in the middle where you feel like you can, where you can live with both sides of that. It's just a lot. And I'm not saying that moms shouldn't be responsible for finding well, their of course, Right, of course. Oftentimes people will assume that there is a grandma in the picture that will just take the baby anytime. Right. And that is simply not the case for every family. Yep. My parents live in a different country. So that would make it difficult for sure. <laughs> right, right. right? My, my husband's mom has five grandkids. Yeah. Our kids are not her only grandkids. So she can't just drop everything and help us all the time. Right. And she lives an hour away. And we live yeah. in an area where an hour drive could be three because of traffic. Yeah. So it's easy to just say, well, why don't you ask for help? But maybe a more useful question would be, do you have systems in place to help you? Right. Yeah. Asking more pointed questions. Exactly. And that was always something I taught a childbirth class for the nonprofit that I work for actually still. And we would always put together a postpartum plan, but it was very specific. Like I would say, okay, who can you call in the middle of the night? Write down their name, write down their number and let them know I might be calling you in the middle of the night for something, even if it's just a talk, or maybe I need you to come over really coming up with the practical plan, because I think we talk about it in sort of a fluffy way. Like, and I think even friends make the, make the mistake of saying, Hey, whenever you need me, just call me. And I think as the person on the receiving end of that, I can only think of two friends in my life now that I would feel comfortable calling in the middle of the night because of something going on. Yet I have had dozens of friends tell me I can do that, but I would not be comfortable doing that with them. When we're thinking about our pregnancy and how, and you had even said you were so consumed with like the natural birth narrative and, and all of those things, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about the postpartum part of it as far as the emotional piece, but even the practical piece of Physically, like, how are we doing this? I remember, I didn't even knew I was going to have a C-section, but you can't walk up and down stairs for like two weeks. Well, I live in a townhouse and the baby's room's on the second floor. So how are we doing? Am I sleeping downstairs? Are we going to have a bassinet? Like literally, logistically, how is this going to work? And I was just so sick at that point of making decisions. And this is another, I I get all these great things doing these podcasts from people with people. She called it decision fatigue. It was the term that was popping in my head as you said that. Oh my gosh. Like, I just, I don't know. Like I have already made a hundred decisions about my baby, about the NICU, about all of these things. Like I just, I'm exhausted. I don't want to make any more decisions. I need somebody to step in and make that decision for me. And so that's exhausting. And then just reading everything like, oh, is formula okay? What formula? Diapers. Just thinking about it is absolutely exhausting. So when you pile a mental health issue on top of all of that, it can spiral out of control really quickly without getting the help or support that a family needs when they're dealing with that. Because it's not just the mom, right? Everybody ultimately ends up dealing with, with it. And without those supports in place, it can crumble pretty quickly. And and it's so preventable in a way that it doesn't have to be so crazy and scary. And with, with the right, you know, preparation from 
doctors and educators and a good amount of empathy while you're in the hospital can go a real long way with people. And our society and our healthcare systems lack that a lot. Not everywhere. So I'm not giving everybody a bad name because I've had some amazing practitioners. When I was going off my medication for everything that I dealt with, my daughter was just getting her autism diagnosis. So it was like, I was like coming off meds for one thing. And then my whole life was literally about to change in a flash. And I remember how different it was. Like, I still remember the lady, this is off topic because it's about autism, but I remember the first lady after my daughter was diagnosed, those people weren't that great. They're like, here, call this number. Your daughter needs a lot of hours of this, that, and the other, but we don't have anyone available. So we can put you on a wait list or probably be six months till you can see anybody but she really needs the help right now. And I'm like, oh, okay. And they're like, here's a list. It was a directory in alphabetical order of like all these providers, which I feel is what you get when you go to your OB or whoever else. And you're like, I'm having a problem. I think I have postpartum depression. Okay. So just go on your health insurance's website and find a therapist. It's hard. Again, when you don't have those critical thinking skills when with what you're going through, it's really hard to do. Not only that, but like- I I had that experience. They told me to go onto a certain website, look through a list, find a provider. And she was someone who claimed to specialize in perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. And she was the one who diagnosed me with postpartum anxiety. And I remember when every time I went to therapy, feeling like I was getting put in a box of a PMAD mom. Everything I said, she already had a lens that she was seeing me through. Every time I would say something, she'd say, well, with my PMAD moms, we blah, 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 blah. And there was like a set protocol for PMAD moms. And I felt like I wasn't being looked at for my individual circumstance. And it was very hard for me to talk about my traumatic events without feeling judged or like everything was just being chalked up to a perinatal mood and anxiety disorder. Right. When there were real things that happened that felt traumatic to me. Yeah. And it took me actually about a year to even be able to call my experience traumatic, to even be able to put a name to it. And I don't remember when it was, but I reached a certain point where I knew that I needed to be able to move forward from what had happened. And for me, that looked like going back to the hospital where I had my son and talking to the labor and delivery and postpartum director and talking to them about my experience. And I knew I couldn't do that until I could tell my story to them from a place of just letting them know what happened and the impact that it had on us. Yeah. Because if I went in expecting anything from them, I knew I would probably just be re-traumatized. Yeah, for sure. And I was really pleasantly surprised at their response to our meeting. It was me, the director of labor and delivery and postpartum and her head nurse. And I brought my son and we just sat in this conference room and they listened really intently. They just let me tell my story. They let me tell them the impact that it had on us. And for us, it was a lot of like, we questioned every single decision that we made with our son. We didn't feel like we could intuitively parent. We didn't feel like we could trust ourselves. And I remember after that meeting, they thanked me profusely for sharing. They told me that the things that happened with the nurse that was in the room, with the pediatrician, with the lack of communication, 
between parties, the lack of communication with us, the sheer amount of interruptions in our room that we had in those first 48 hours, we were interrupted 36 times in the first 24 hours between birth certificate meals, environmental services, repeat visits from birth certificate because we hadn't come up with a name yet. And they were like haranguing us hearing tests, my blood pressure, baby's blood sugar, standard vitals visits, lactation, all of that. It was 36 visits. So add that in to things. I could go on all day about our experience and all of the things that were frustrating. But I think probably the most healing thing for us to hear from them was that interrupted a really important time for you. And we know that you can't get that time back. Yeah. We're so sorry. And we are going to do everything in our power to make this right for people who come in, in the future. And I heard from the head nurse a couple of weeks later, and she had brought it up in this labor and delivery nurse group on Facebook. And she just mentioned that she had someone come in who said that the sheer amount of interruptions in her room and the lack of communication and all of this was really traumatic for her. And one of the things I said to them too, I was like, this is routine for you guys. Like, I understand that to you, 37 weeks, isn't that early to be having a baby and that he was generally pretty healthy and his problems weren't that serious. But to us, this was really scary. And to us, this was very early. And to us, this was a very scary experience and not at all what we expected. Yeah. And they understood that. But when she put this question out to the labor and delivery group, there was a ton of discussion between nurses at different hospitals talking about what their policies are on how they care for their clients and how often are they interrupting people in rooms? And is there any way you can cluster care between vitals for mom and vitals for baby? Like, do you have to do separate visits or can you do it all at the same time? And it just started the ball rolling within the community. And she let me know that that was happening. And all of that was far beyond what I expected. Yeah. So that was at about a year postpartum, about 15 months postpartum. And this was like right when COVID was beginning. Once I was able to name my experience as traumatic, I realized that I needed to be seeing a therapist that specialized in trauma. Um, And I decided to go with someone who specialized in general trauma, not birth trauma, because I didn't want to be seen through the lens of perinatal mood and anxiety. I didn't want to be put in a box. I wanted to process my experience as a human being. Yeah. And she was the first person too, when I talked about my experience with my postpartum that recognized the OCD tendencies in what I went through, like two weeks postpartum, I decided to Marie Kondo my closet and, and I had a meltdown anytime the baby cried because I needed to get this closet cleaned at two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. (laughs) I was completely Marie Kondoing my closet. Yeah. I'm not a messy person but I'm certainly not someone who has to have everything super duper sparkling, perfectly clean. Like I could not drop it. If something was not perfectly tidy, it was like, I put all of this out of like loss of control energy into controlling my environment. Right. And then if, and then if my son would stop that process, it was like infuriating to me. And this is like, I would never, I would never be like 
deep cleaning my floor. Right. <laughs> Even when I was, well, I never really like, I never got to the nesting part of right. crazy, like exactly. that crazy nesting that happens at the end. I never had that, but I, I rationalized it at the time as, oh, well, this is my body making up for like posting surge that <laughs> right. I never had in my pregnancy. Right. Right. But in hindsight, I can obviously see that was where the OCD flag. kicked in. And then I had intrusive thoughts too. And for me, they were more centered around judgment from others. Yeah. I was really Maybe. afraid of being judged by others. I think I had a lot of self-doubt about my ability to be a good mom and to be an intuitive parent and my ability to really know how to do this. I was the youngest in my family. So I didn't have that experience of younger cousins, younger siblings. I was the youngest sibling. I was the youngest cousin. The first time I ever changed a diaper was in the hospital when I had my son. So I'm learning about kids through having my own kids. I no experience whatsoever. And so I think I had a lot of self-doubt too. And that manifested as this debilitating fear of being judged by the moms around me who I considered to be role models, to be really good moms. Right. And I felt like I needed to show that I was doing a good job. Yeah. Yeah. Like that pressure of Mm -hmm. really just displaying that for everybody. Like I'm doing, you know. Yeah. But as soon as I went to this therapist who specialized in OCD and who specialized in trauma, it was like, I'm talking like a couple of weeks, the fog lifted immediately. And Obviously I'm not saying that the misdiagnosis was entirely a bad thing. Cause it did get me on medication, which was something I had never been on before. And honestly, I think prior to having a baby, I was probably a good candidate. And I think honestly, I, I think going through a perinatal mood and anxiety disorder was probably one of the healthiest things to happen to me suffering mentally prior to having a baby, but I had ways of coping with it. They were time consuming. Yeah. They were time consuming things and having a baby took away my time to do those things that were masking an underlying health issue. Exactly. Yeah. And so it forced me to treat it properly. Yeah. I had the time to journal for an hour a day (laughs) or, and it's not that I don't, those things are important. Like self-care is important. Mm -hmm. Taking time to go and do the things you love is important. All of that. But it, it really forced me to take care of it properly. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's one of the things we do lose, right, is time. And, mm-hmm. and we can find self-care that's easy to do or whatever the case may be, but it does take time. Like it's time. And, it's and time. We, we lose that a lot of it when we have a newborn or even not even just a newborn, this, this a new way of coping with everything. Once you have a child, because the newborn stage ends and then something else happens. And then you're like, Oh, once they become, once they're in school full time, it'll be much better. And then it's like every single stage has its own thing. And so we really, you know, have to find the self-care tools that work for that moment. And right. And have enough at our disposal so that we can pick and choose which ones work in the current state that we're in. For me, it was a lot of connecting. I just love to touch people, hugs. I love like that connection. And when COVID came, I was like, well, this sucks because while I like seeing people's faces through my laptop, it's not the same as being 
in the same room with somebody. And so COVID really affected me in that way. The pandemic itself has been so hard on people in general, but new moms, moms that are suffering, moms that need therapy, and now we're doing it through a computer screen. Like it's just, it's tough. It's such an adjustment. That's Um, why I became a doula. Yeah. I, well, God, I would have, I would do so many things different if I had, I totally would have had a doula. I would have midwife. I would have done things completely different, but oh yes. God bless the doulas. They make such a big, big difference in the entire experience of becoming a mom. It's just incredible. Yeah. I don't know about you, but, um, For me, when the pandemic hit and everything got closed down and we were all like locked in our houses and all of that, it was right around the time that I had just started coming out of the fog. And when the shutdowns happened, that feeling was so familiar to me. Isolation, that like feeling stuck in your house, like all the walls are closing in and just not being able to like do anything. I felt like I was right back in postpartum. Yeah. I heard that so many times from moms recently, just talking with them that that is exactly what it felt like. And, and that they would even tell that to people be like, when I was going through, like, this is what it felt like. Like I was, I was stuck inside forced to not be able to go anywhere, whether it was because phobias of we were going to get sick or our baby was going to get sick. It was so parallel to like what that feels like. And it's when you don't have the right people around you and the right support systems that can take you right down a deep dive too, as far as depression. And when you're not able to handle things like that. Yeah. It's just, it's the pandemic has definitely it's yeah. Right. Not good. Not good. But hopefully we're, we're slowly getting on the other side of, of everything. And if anything, telehealth has become, so I think more people are able to get help. It might not be the exact help that they want, but at least the accessibility has changed and telehealth is becoming more of a mainstream acceptable way, especially with health, health insurance companies who weren't paying for telehealth are now paying for things like that. Because it's important. People well, and need virtual to get... support groups. And virtual support groups. Absolutely. The fact that you can just get on your phone, you can click a button and yeah. you can be suddenly connected on Zoom with a bunch of other people who are going through the exact same thing that you are. That is probably one of the best things for perinatal mental health that came out of this pandemic. For sure. And I don't know how many other places are doing this, but our pediatrician started a program called Well Checks on Wheels, where you could have a telehealth visit. And you ask all of your questions. And then if you're within a certain mile radius of them, they send a van. (laughs) It sounds kind of creepy, but they send a van to your house and you come out of your house, you go into the van, they quickly take your kids vitals. They quickly give them any shots that they need. And then you're done. You don't even have to leave your house. That's fantastic. And I I called the pediatrician's office specifically to say, you need to keep this forever for parents with newborns, because I can't tell you how much of a hassle it is to have to leave your house two days after you get home from the hospital, when everyone is telling you that you need to stay home and heal to have to go out of your house and then go to a pediatrician's office when you should be home resting and bonding with your newborn. Yeah. That was a whole other thing with my postpartum experience that visit turned into a whole day thing. Cause I had all this swelling in my legs. And then my midwife was like, you need to come in right now. And then I had to go for an ultrasound and I, that ended up being a whole day thing. 
for us. And I remember just thinking like, you keep telling me to rest, but you're not letting me, you're not letting me. Right. Right. We're told one thing, but we're not able to do it. Like it's just, and of course there's a balance, right. Of like making sure that everything is okay and whatnot. But I just felt like I was getting so many mixed messages. Yes. I think you hit the nail on the head with that. Mixed messages are something I feel as moms, we get constantly and not just around our pregnancy and postpartum, but parenting and Oh my gosh. And just decision school my kid goes to and what they're learning about and what they should wear and what they should, they have an iPad or none screen time. And it's just like, you're inundated with all of this information. Oh yeah. It's a, it's a lot. We could do a whole podcast just on that. There's 20 million things we could do a whole podcast. episode. There, there really are scratching the surface. We right? are really literally just scratching the surface. 